As I walk out tonight in the mystic garden The wounded flowers were dangling from the vine I was passing by a young cool crystal fountain Someone hit me from behind They say prayer has the power to help So pray for my mother In the human heart An evil spirit can dwell I'm a trying to love my neighbor And do good unto others But oh mother Things ain't going well And welcome back to the Thinking God podcast. After a long break, our goal is to reboot this podcast and head into the fall and winter with perspectives from an even broader group of people uh, who are making a difference in this world and at the same time cling to some sort of hope that things can get better. This week I talked to John Pavlovitz, a well-known progressive Christian voice who spent the last several years opening conversations with Stuff That Needs To Be Said, that's the name of his blog, which reaches millions of people. He also has more than 278,000 Facebook followers and nearly 200,000 Twitter followers who he actively challenges with the message of good news and he exposes the anti-faith actions of Donald Trump and his supporters and his evangelical lapdogs who have all uh, fallen in there while he does uh, encourage his uh, followers. He is the author of three books, A Bigger Table, which is an invitation to inclusiveness, The Superpower of Hope, which is an encouragement for dark times, and his latest low and honest Advent devotional, all are available on Amazon. John's also a father, an artist, and a man who is committed to holding out hope for all of us. Let's just start with your, your first book, uh, A Bigger Table. Uh, you, you said you want to be a graphic designer first. Did you use Aldous PageMaker or Freehand? Or what uh, were you using? Yeah, yeah, well, Freehand and, you know, Illustrator. My wife was a graphic was designer. She was a big Freehand. I was sort of, but I resisted the te technology because I was sort of a hand illustrator. Ah, okay. A pen and ink guy. So it was really a difficult kind of wrestling with that technology. So, yeah, so I still prefer that more tactile experience. Well, how does art still play a part in your life? I mean, if you were an artist then, you, you always give that up. Right. I think you, you, my creativity has been funneled into different venues, uh, preparing, working on the website design and social media posts and creating memes and things. So you do using those sensibilities. And what I found is a lot, I've had a great deal of success because I know how to make things look nice and I know that people are very visual. And so somebody could have something that's really a profound statement, but if it's attached to something that looks like it was created in 1983, it's not going to get read. And so I'm always using those muscles, trying to reach people visually. And uh, we have an apparel line that my wife and I have created. So I still get to be an art director and graphic designer in that way. Where can so, people yeah. find that at? What's that called? That's uh, it's, it's Pavlovitz Design. It's, it's an Etsy shop. And so we just we started as... Uh, people were saying, well, I love the blog posts, but it's difficult for me to have these conversations. So what's a conversation starter? So we started with a couple of shirts that had statements on them. And then people said, oh, I love that because it sort of let, lets me say what I believe without directly, you know, getting into a conversation. And it's been a great tool for people. So, you know, a woman came up to me the other day and said, oh, I know what I'm wearing for Thanksgiving dinner this year. And uh, that way I can 
start the conversation that way. Now, do you still sketch and stuff too? Or? I do, I do. You know, I was also a musician, so I'm using that more as an extracurricular uh, time, so I don't get to do artwork as much as I'd like to. Uh, music is probably the, the thing I do more of than I used to do. What do you play? Uh, I play guitar. I've been a songwriter. Uh, you know, we wrote songs in a, in a band in college, and then as, when I became a uh, pastor, started writing for the church, started writing music that we were, you know, using in worship and a student ministry band, and that was sort of a ministry that we did traveling around. And uh, so, yeah, so I've, I've been able to harness or use some of that creativity still. I haven't had to just cut it right off. You know, you never can. Well, you mentioned college. Um... You had sort of an awakening to diversity that had a lot of spiritual overtones, but no church in college. And you were playing music then too? Yeah, I was playing music. I had a band that you know played in uh, the circuit in Philadelphia and New Jersey and New York, and that was sort of what I was dreaming of being. And at the time, you know, I called myself a hopeful agnostic. I had drifted from my Catholicism and had still attended church here or there by myself, but slowly drifted from that. And then had this experience in Philadelphia where you know, diversity and poverty and just being immersed in a world that I had been sort of segregated from, separated from. And then that awakened me to a whole different kind of view of the world. And then ministry didn't come until 10 years later. And that was when I realized I could not live that expansively as a pastor because the church inherently sort of shrinks that sort of table for you. I'm not sure I've ever met anybody that jumped from art to Methodist youth director. That yeah. may be the that may be rocking along with Paul on the road to Damascus. That's right. Yeah, that's an unusual leap. Well, it was an unexpected leap. Yeah, and also you were I before we got away from that. You said you had a very ch happy childhood, and oh, raised yeah, in a Catholic yeah. church. Did did any of that spiritual you know um, background influence you in those times, or was that sort of just on pause? Or I, I think what it gave me was I, I was always thinking about the reality of God and thinking about whatever the creator was. And so that was always there. And I think I gained a love and respect for that that my The ritual of Catholicism has been something more recently that muscle memory is there even now. So uh, I never really necessarily rejected it because I'd been damaged. I just rejected it because it no I wasn't seeing what I thought the teachings of Jesus were. I wasn't seeing that manifested in a local community. And so it wasn't until getting to Philadelphia and then finding this small Methodist chapel where that was happening, where I was seeing that. And that that was where we volunt I volunteered. You know, a woman tapped me on the shoulder three months after we were there and said, you know, I've been praying about you and I think you'd be an amazing youth leader. And I smiled and thought to myself, I know you, you're the current youth leader. Right. I, love, I love that paragraph because that is, you nailed growing up in church right there is, uh, you know, God is calling you to this because I need to do something else. That's know? right. Yeah, that's right. She, she, and, and for me it was, so that was where a ministry, I was completely surprised and it was an unfolding over a couple of years, but it was the synergy of a lot of things of my, my faith experiences, my heart for teenagers, uh, and then the power of community. So those things all began to sort of, as I say, you know, as I started to teach these students a faith that I didn't really have, my faith grew. And that's where I was putting so much time and passion into it that I finally said, I think I should leave this thing that I've been doing my whole life, this plan of being a graphic designer and art director. I've been around this kind of stuff a long time. And I wonder, I guess you do recognize how unusual it is to, to have allowed you to work your faith out as youth director. That's, that's not a common 
call the youth director. Right. Well, part of it was, I, you know, they were a small church, so they didn't really, we were, as I say, they, we were young and available. And we they did a couple with warm bodies. And, and I didn't have a criminal record as far as they right. were aware of. And, you know, so part of it was I, I was um, evolving at, at a time that a church was ready to allow me to evolve. So they knew that I, I believe some basic things, and so they just wanted someone who would share life with teenagers. And that's where I learned the, the value of authenticity as a pastor because I didn't have to necessarily pretend. I could say, well, here's what the scriptures say, but here's, here's what I'm thinking about it, or this is what the story has been, but here's a different version of that story maybe. And I just, I never wanted to minister outside of that. And that was what going to larger churches and moving to Charlotte, being part of that mega church culture, that gets squeezed out of you because certainty is is something that's treasured in you. It's a it's a liability to ask questions often. Well, yeah, that, that we're not going to run down that side road, but that idea of addiction to certainty that Pete Enns and Peter Rollins and several people have written a lot about that that mm -hmm. has become a real golden calf of this uh, this age, as everybody wants to be so so certain of everything. That's right. But youth director is the youth pastor is is really more of a minefield than almost any ministry job because. Mm. You don't have the authority, you get blamed for everything, but you don't get credit for hardly anything. <laughs> yeah. And you've got a, a young congregation that is increasingly, and it's always been this way, but it's even, they're more honest about it now, I think, unwilling to put up with any bullshit at all. They're, they're just mm. not going to, the religious stuff doesn't matter to them, and what you think doesn't matter to them. Yeah, well, I was fortunate. The, the first community in, in uh, Philadelphia, I had two senior pastors um, who really believed in me, really had my back, and they saw that the, the church, the youth program was growing the church, that youth were coming there and they were seeing excitement that they hadn't had, young families. So that gave me an element of um, security to, to know that they were always fighting for me, increasing the budget, all those things, and when there were issues with parents or something, they always erred on the side of supporting me. And that was helpful. Now, when I got to the megachurch, what I ended up having to do was stay long enough to have an equity of trust, and that was what I did. So I could nudge the community later on because the youth program had reached such a status or because I had time served really was helpful. And so um, that was a huge benefit for me. So I, I was always really well cared for as a youth pastor. Well, you know, it's one of those things, most studies you see will say that people that have left church return when they have families. Yes. They're looking for place for children and yeah. youth and stuff. They're looking for those kind of things. But I, I was raised in, in churches, in, in, in Southern Baptist churches, mm. and what I learned in youth group was how to lie. <laughs> yeah. I learned really, it was one of the best, you know, really master's level classes on how to tell lies to make yourself look like you're supposed to, to get to get the answers they want. And it really has been, I'm afraid, a legacy of, of too many of the traditional Baptist churches and stuff and the real conservative churches over the years. Yeah, I call it a conspiracy of pretending that the church often, you know, nurtures in that there there's a minister up there who's looking at the people and he or she is saying, well, I know they have an expectation of me, so I better present that, you know, because I had a a person I was feeling called to be as I explored the teachings of Jesus and there was a pastor that I was expected to be. There's a tension there. Um, and so, and then what happens is the people in the congregation are looking at the minister up there thinking, well, they're so perfect, they're so sure. So no one ever really kind of fully says, here's where I am. And so I, I try to do that as much as I can, but you know that there, there are pressures. You know, I talk to people all the time about ministers. Most of them aren't uh, intentionally misleading you. It's just they become beholden to their community. It's natural. Right. But even if, I think this, it's learned early if you're raised in church. Because if, you yeah, had, yeah. if in your youth group you had a young man come up and say, you know, he's 
bright kid and kid of faith said, look, I can't stop sleeping with my girlfriend, you know? They get marginalized in most groups, whereas the kid who lies about it that's also sleeping with his girlfriend is head of the youth group. That's, you know? yeah, so for sure. They learn pretty quickly that, wow, so I, I really was trying to be honest about a struggle, and now yes. this guy that I know what he's doing, he's the head of the youth group, you know? Yeah, and you learn to read the room, you learn what will, how much authenticity will ingratiate you in the community, and then how much will get you pushed aside. And that's a game that I think Christians learn to play that the uh, the politics of what you share about yourself. Yeah. Well, and pastors burn out faster than almost any other profession. I mean, I you know I went to seminary with Golden Gate Southern and mm. and didn't last terribly long because everybody thought they wanted someone who would come in that came out of the Jesus movement that would tell the truth. And after about three or four months, I didn't have a family, so I didn't care. I yeah, really didn't. That's right. I had no no no. <laughs> gold in the game at all so i'm like i'm just going to say what i'm supposed to and you told me that's what you wanted no we can't have that yeah and so people burn out and now but once you get a family and people get i mean you, you've just been through it it's yeah, just one of those right. things where you make a decision is it my paycheck or can i live with myself you know yeah the way i describe it is you know healthcare is seductive you know to know that that's there and you're not even really intellectually you're not thinking that through at the time but that the pressure's there looking back and you begin to weigh all these things with the home where you live and the community you're part of and all of it together it's often just uh, too much for pastors so they don't start off thinking they're going to be duplicitous it just happens i love share i love the story of when you came home and told your kids what happened and you know just share that real quickly just when when i was fired right yeah well, that was fairly recently right I mean, it's been in the last it was about eight or ten months it was about no i was actually it was about five years ago that i that i lost the position at the church in raleigh and that was oh, okay. after okay. only five months like we had so i had this equity of trust in charlotte i right. i decided to leave and start a new ministry and realize okay i don't have that equity of trust so my voice is now my authenticity is a liability where it was not before um and so yeah getting back there and then having this happen and um yeah, I'm not sure of this, this the story about the, that you're referring to, but I can remember early on, you know, getting fired and having this this uh, blog post go viral, and then all the tumult that happens around it, and then my ten year old saying, "Well, I, at the dinner table, I have a question," and I said, "Sure," and he said, "Why does everybody hate Daddy?" And I said, "Well, you know, that's just your mother, son. That's it. Don't listen to her." But I said, "No, we, you know, we talk about the people who." are angry at daddy for what he believes but here's why a lot of people love daddy and so you're you're taking them through the the dark parts of the church which is really difficult or, or of christianity you know? and do you think they're digesting that well having watched you go through this and, yeah I you mean, know my how old are your kids i'm sorry they're nine and 14 and so my 14 year old now especially he was able to understand it in real time a little bit and then now he understands this is why dad does what he does. This is the price that there has been, that we've had to pay. And it sort of has dovetailed into the political environment in our country because they, they see, okay, if you're gonna speak on behalf of compassion and mercy and love and justice, there's gonna be a pushback you're gonna receive. And, and ironically, it's often from Christians. So, you know, that's been part of, I think they shaped them. You know, they have a compassion that's really active, you know. And I'm gonna get back to that in a minute. Sure. Um, We've had uh, voices sort of crying in the wilderness like this for a, long, you know, a number of years. Tony mm -hmm. Campolo, we mentioned a minute ago before we started, he, from Eastern College, we're here. Sure. And uh, Brian McLaren's been on here and talked about, you know, Tony used to say to youth groups in the 70s, why are you having the star athlete and the beauty queen speak to, mm. to the youth? Because none of them can relate to those people. Right. <laughs> and 
so that, but they yeah. were sort of widely ignored <laughs> and the culture didn't change. Yeah. And so you're um, still pretty fresh at working with young people. Do you think there's hope for a change here? I know second, your second book was talking about the superpower of hope. Do you think there is hope for? Yeah, you know, I think as I travel, it was interesting. I was actually, I had dinner with Tony a couple of days ago and we were talking about this because my question was, I often hear from people like you and Brian uh, or Doug Paget or someone, you've been fighting this battle to sort of redeem Christianity, but you've been doing it for decades now. Do you get to the point where you say this thing is, you, you can't rescue it from where it's being held. And But yet when I travel the country, I get to be in a new city all the time and then you see young people and really people in general who are engaging their communities in powerful ways. It's just, it's hard to register those in your consciousness every day because you're looking at Twitter, you're looking at the news. So the hope is actually there. I had a guy say to me, I have two news feeds in my life. I have the news and Twitter, which is always gonna give me really bad stuff. And he said, but I have a, a news feed that's closer, that's on the ground. If I put my head toward there and I look and see what's happening in my community, the people I know, the, the names I know, then it's really easy for me to see that, you know, beautiful redemptive work is being done it's just right now it doesn't trend because we know what trends right um, and i think a lot of people of faith you know the idea that the three things remain the faith hope and love you know yeah they're trying to hang on to their faith and then trying to hold them to shred of hope exactly <laughs> and they know they still love people but they, they just can't figure out how to how to make this work when people are in their up in their grill all the time yeah well yeah and i think there are two things i think there's the reality and the reality is hey we, we're dealing with a lot of relentlessness a cruelty that we haven't experienced a lot, and, and but also we have more uh, ability to to know about it. So our news channels are so much greater in the flow of information. So it's constantly barraging us. You know, I'm, I'm doing a workshop tonight on compassion fatigue. The fatigue comes from not just what's happening, but how much you're inundated with what's happening. So you wake up in the morning and you see a story, and then you share it. And then it gets retweeted and you get notifications and all of a sudden you've seen that story 30 times before the day is over and it artificially inflates the threat. So I think there's a lot of that happening too. And there was a time when people were like, you know, I'm pretty good at going and visiting people when they're sick or I'm pretty good at this and they just get up and do it as part of their life. Right. And now it's, I think you get a combination, you get hit a little bit from the other side that you aren't doing enough. Yep. No matter what you're doing, you could do more. You know, you, yeah. you, can, you can help 10 people. Can you help 20 people this week? Exactly. You know, you, we really appreciate your help with this charity, but can you give us another $10,000? You mm -hmm. know, it's like, and people, yeah. they lose the joy in, in the actual serving and doing the things because they get that, they, they, the, like you said, the amount of information is so overwhelming, they are not sure what they're doing is making much of a difference because it seems small. That's right, and I think a lot of people are getting burnt out, they're getting exhausted, I, I call it information poisoning, and then so they're dropping away, or they're just saying, I can't do this right now, I can't engage, and so you have fewer people who are really on the front lines, and they're trying to ratchet it up every day, they're caring a lot more than they used to, and they have this guilt that, yeah, that we're not making any headway, and so part of my job as I travel is to you know, encourage them enough to say, yeah, take a, take a, a rest, you know, care for yourself, but then get back in this thing because that's the story here. The story is, the hopeful story is if you do the work now, it's aspirationally that in the future you will see the ripples of that. That right now you probably can't, you know, as a youth minister, I, I meet students now in their late 20s, early 30s who now tell me thank you for what you did, you know, 20 years ago uh, and, and had no clue. So you just trust 
that that's working. Well, when you're talking to people around, and I know you, you draw a pretty good variety to your crowds, mm -hmm. and I've seen some of your interviews online. What about people who are having trouble? Maybe they're active and they're in the fight, but they're just really having trouble hanging on to their faith. What do you tell them? I mean, it seems like the pegs of at least uh, organized Christianity, the tent pegs are coming up and it's about to collapse. Yeah. You know, for me, I tell, I tell people that people of faith and morality and conscience who are part of a faith tradition of any kind, if they're, if they're aware, they're fighting with and for the faith tradition all the time. And I'm, I'm constantly doing that. I'm constantly saying, what is the toxicity in that thing that I'm trying to help people avoid? But I've also seen the beautiful parts of it. And so it's, it's a challenge. There are some days where you can't hold on to the thing that you used to hold on to, and you have to either find a new expression of it, or temporarily you just have to say, I can't believe that thing right now. And it's all right to do that. You know? Yeah, it's just the danger, I think, for a lot of us is you can get caught in deconstruction for years. That's because right. Because there are so many... There are always, always going to be more questions. Uh, years ago, this is way before social, way before the internet, I interviewed Mike Iaconelli, and I remember the quote he said that, and he said this many times, that church is the place where the incompetent, the unfinished, and the unhealthy are welcome. And that seems to be at the heart of your message as well. Why is that still radical? Yeah, yeah. how about that? Well, it's funny because I actually was at a, a youth specialties conference years ago, probably 15 years ago, and I was ready to quit ministry, and I had signed up for an eight-hour course before the conference, and I walked into the classroom, and I was sitting there thinking, I don't want to be here. I, didn't, I don't know why I signed up for this. I'm going to walk next door and walk in there because that, that was Mike Iaconelli's a spiritual retreat for youth workers. And what I heard from him that day was this thing, again, that is so rad, was so radical then, and it's radical now, is, and I think it's because we just don't want to admit how messed up we are. We don't want our flaws and our, you know, our failings to be um, visible. And I think, so what Mike tapped into was this Christianity that said, oh, I'm a mess, and I'm fine with it. I'm gonna let you know. Um, and that really shaped me. That and, and Tony Campolo really helped me to say there is a space in Christianity for doubt, which is, there should be, right? There should, you look at the Psalms and the psalmist is one day saying, oh God, you're so wonderful. And the other day is going, I don't even know if you're here. And so uh, I don't know why we can't do that. I think there's a competitive nature to humanity right now and we just want to be the best Christian. We lost Mike way too soon. He had that uh, college church, the slowest growing church in California. That's right. That his yeah. brand. And, and he also did something. I don't know if anybody else has been able to pull off has had Socratic sermons. I mean, he would just sit there and yep. let people talk the whole time, which makes a lot of sense. But you know as well as I do how difficult that is to pull off. Yeah, you know, I start, we started doing something at our church called What Are You Thinking? And it happens after the messages. And then I, would, I often, when I say travel, I'll begin with that. I'll just say, I don't know anything about you. I've never been to this city. What are you thinking? What's on your mind? And we just let the message flow from there because uh, I think that's the other part about it. The church is often built on these cults of personalities and these people who, you know, a church could, someone could go to church for 10 years and hear one or two people's voices rather than hear the thousands of voices who are part of that community. So. And your, your faith tradition and growing up and even that seems to have missed a lot of the fundamentalist movement and, and up close and personal. Mm, yeah. um, I grew up in a lot of that. And um, I, it seems that people who t 
talk about a literal translation of the Bible miss Matthew 25 and the fruit of the Spirit and the things that sure. if you took those literally, you wouldn't be saying the things you're saying yeah, about, that's right. about some of the other stuff. They also eat lobster and shrimp. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, well, there's a selective, uh, yeah. yeah, for sure. But um, do you see evangelicalism still suffering from sort of the hangover from fundamentalism? I mean, we, we see, we're talking about politics now. We're kind of moving into that. I, I, I've been around this a long time, and I've not seen this many people co-opt themselves to someone who is so radically anti-Christian. Yeah, it's been a marvel. You know, I, I was telling folks yesterday here that if you if you had asked a bunch of pastors in 2015 what they thought of the person who would become president, they would have said it's the antithesis of, of Jesus. And so I think there's a combination of a, a, a religion that's immersed in fear. So if you're raised for 40 years to think that God is a white cisgender heterosexual man who was born in America and votes Republican, and you're going to have hostility towards groups who don't fit that. I think there's, so there's a fear, and I think the evangelicals often want an author, authoritarian figure who says, this is what you should believe, this is what you know, you're in danger of, and this is who I'll help you. And more progressive Christians and more progressive people of faith we tend to want to explore that for ourselves. So I think what you're seeing is the wholesale movement toward uh, toward this political thing because it it solves the answer quickly for them. They don't have to do any work. I think they're misreading the tea leaves a bit too. I know um, my mother was raised very conservative and all, of it, and she just scratches her head. And her and her friends who are mm. spiritual don't understand the pastor of First Baptist Dallas basically becoming a, a lapdog for the President of the United States, saying yeah. things that are so ungodly. I'm surprised his church has put up with it. That's amazing to me that he's been able to survive that. That's a scary, it scares me maybe as much as anything. Well, it is, and I, you know, I see him on the news all the time. And then last week I was in Dallas speaking at First Church, First United Methodist Church, which is right across the street. Uh, and so you're staring at this, at this giant building and thinking, how do so many people buy into that? So you see the power of fear and the, the desire to belong because I think a lot of people as I travel the country people speak to me in private or through emails and they'll say I don't believe this but I'm in this church or in this family that if I say any of these things if I question this I will be ostracized and so the the pull of community is so strong I think a lot of people are sort of trapped there and and the other part is that they're just uh, there's a story we all want to tell ourselves, and right now they want to tell themselves the story that the president is you know, delivered by God, so they'll argue anything to have that story be true. Well, in Dallas's case, I mean, basically it's the house that Criswell built, W.A. Criswell built mm -hmm. that house, and it, it's not even a quarter of the people that were there when he was there, so it's slowly right. eroding away under the weight of its own, you know, like you talk about the cult personality, and he was pretty prickly too, mm -hmm. you know. He, uh, I remember when the Southern Baptist Convention met there in San Antonio, they had, Capello spoke to, and of course, Tony did what he always did. He, was, he spoke to Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and he said, why are y'all here fighting with your brothers across town? I can't, I can't even get along with yeah. But Chris Will said there was no middle of the road. The only thing in the middle of the road was a white stripe and a dead skunk, which is very mm, healing as well. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's so typical, though, of the traditional Baptists and, right. and other conservative sort of denominational things. And even, even Grant Franklin Graham, who... To his credit, said he should never be in the charge of it. He said, I shouldn't take this, and they talked him into it, but he did He did say yes. Yeah, right. And he's just been, I don't understand the his need to, the God and country thing has never been a, a comfortable thing. It's not scriptural, and it's not. Uh, no, no, and I, I, for me, looking at someone like him, I'm always questioning, is this a an authentic 
conclusion that he has reached about his Christianity and about the president and all these things, or is this strictly a power grab? And it's hard, difficult to know. You know, um, I think you know if you're surrounded by yes men enough, it won't even occur to you that you're you're you've gone to that extremist place. And I think he's there where he just he he's not capable of seeing himself. He's not capable of self awareness because even the the cruelty with which he dispenses and the sort of poking people. Um, you don't know how someone, because, you know, Billy Graham had his flaws, but that was a man he never, he was never that person. And I think he made some mistakes with Nixon, but then he course corrected and said, I'm not going to be part of that political thing. And you see Franklin go completely the opposite Well, he direction. confessed. You'd think that'd be the one thing you say. Well, the one thing my dad said he wished he hadn't done was been in the back room choosing Spiro Agnew. Exactly you know? right. Yeah. I shouldn't have ever done that. I shouldn't have been involved. It was the worst mistake in my entire life. Yep. And then, of course, Franklin, people should have seen this coming because when Ruth died, she had asked the family to bury her at Montreat, but they put her in the, the museum for yeah. the dog and pony thing over there because it made money to do that. I mean, it didn't make any sense. So. Well, I used to speak there once a week at the, uh, doing the staff devotions. I was in Charlotte. They had someone, a local pastor every week. I would lead worship on Fridays. And you started to see the change as Billy got sick, as he got less involved. And then you see Fox News, people start showing up, and there was a just you could see that slide. And that, that's something that's been so disheartening because people say to me, well, where are the progressive Billy Grahams or Franklin Grahams? Where are the progressive Jerry Falwells? There are reasons we don't have those, there but we don't, even have, we don't even have faith leaders who are just in the middle speaking for decency. And that's the sad part. Well, you can't sell decency. Right. I mean, that's, that's part of the problem. I and mean, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty, um, uh, it's pretty clear you can't sell. The fruit of the spirit is not for sale. Kindness yeah. is not something you can raise funds on. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jerry Fall Jr. You touched on that. The, some of his students, and they'll probably be expelled, but they're actually challenging him for the first time ever to yeah. say, "You're holding us to standards that you aren't keeping." And you know, his dad is the most famous Jerry Falwell Sr. And his dad was the guy who created that sort of uh, mass mailing fundraising. He he sent. I don't, I don't, you ever hear the tel Teletubby story of Jerry Falwell Jr.? I don't think he so. He sent out a mass mailing saying that one of the, to try to raise funds, so we've got to stop this homosexual dinner, said one of the Teletubbies is gay. Well, the guy at the BBC that created the Teletubbies, they, they basically caught him cold walking out of something and told him what, the, and he had this blank look on his face and he said, they're puppets. <laughs> <laughs> and he scratches, he said, they're puppets. <laughs> he was just shaking his head. But I mean, his, his dad was, that, but his dad was smarter than him for one thing. I hate to say that, but I mean, he, mm. he, was, he was a serpent, but he was a smarter serpent. Yeah. But, this guy is just unhinged, and, and, and the president is giving people that permission. This is what's frightening, and I see it on, this is where it bothers me. The national level, you talked about bringing it down local. I see local people who are smarter than that and are better than that are just are given permission to be angry and unhinged. That's right. Yeah, for, I have seen more, you know, the pastor of the church where I was in, in Charlotte even, you know, saying things that I would have been shocked to hear them say, and, and what you see is, Pastors read the room and they see the way the wind is blowing and they look at their attendance figures and it all begins to coalesce into this kind of soul selling and that's the disturbing part because you know I drive through North Carolina all the time and you see signs and bulletin boards and you're thinking, wow, how did this happen so quickly? That and I, you know obviously the story is not that anything has been created since 2016; it's just been uncovered in a way, and people have been emboldened. Yeah, emboldened. I think that's it, and I do think you know that we could we could spend the rest of an hour talking about latent racism and other things. But there is a deeper thing, and I started thinking about this when I was preparing to talk to you, is if you look back 
it's not the first time the church has done this in this country, even in the last recent years. Right. Between 1890, I looked it up in 1941, 5,000 uh, citizens were lynched in the deep south and Midwest. Wow. And the white church didn't really seem to say, have much to say about that. In fact, they probably encouraged it yeah, in more cases right. than not. And then it came along that a few of us old Jesus freaks and a small group of progressive white churches tried to march in the civil rights movement with these brave African-American who were giving, you're talking about giving up everything? Yeah. Not only giving up everything, putting their life and their family's lives on That's the line right. when it was a time, there was a great story here that I'll just throw in of a, a woman who was the only freedom writer from this town. And the original ones all backed out when it became threatening. And her okay. dad brought his 19 year old daughter down here and said, I know God wants you to do this, honey. And drove away just thinking he'd never see her again you know wow. and she but her she her kindness and gentleness turned away every attempt at, mm. at violence on that whole bus trip people would get on and yell at her and do wow. things and she carried her bible and she said what sort of started it out they got to a town and he was they were swinging nightsticks and tapping at him and he said what do you have in your hands and she held up her bible and he said oh, like he cringed yeah, like a vampire it's like garlic to a vampire <laughs> yeah. yeah that's right but it's nothing new under the sun we've yeah. we've, we've turned our heads too many times before and it's just there like you're saying you see it more now it's more obvious now yeah and it's i think held up in your face and there's a sense by some you know progressives white folks who say oh my gosh it's gotten so terrible and not realizing that you know this has been the experience of vulnerable communities for decades i i think it's just there is a brazenness to the uh, what's happening and when you see pastors and people like lindsey graham completely selling their morality it's, there's a shock to it. There's almost a, you can't you can't fathom why it's happening. I think right now a lot of people are just going where when are the adults going to swoop in and fix it? And that's that's really can be disheartening if you experience that for enough time. And you can't again back to you can't sell honesty. You have to sell certainty. That's right. You know, it's, it's certainty is for advertising. This is the best product that we've ever had. Yes. And that, you hear that in Trump's mouth. He sounds like he's doing an info commercial no matter what he's talking about. Yeah, and you know, you'll see in the tweets, they, he'll tweet the same all caps sentences over and over again. You know, make America great. It's apropos of nothing, but he's just gonna throw it out there or no collusion or, and, and that's what people want. They want, even Christians, they want, give me something short that I don't have to investigate. I don't have time for an existential crisis. And so you just tell me what to believe. Yeah, and that's what's got us where we are. That's exactly. Fortunate. Um, I feel like sometimes I'm, I'm either in a bad dream or, or, in, or in, a, in a Jack Chick track. I'm not sure which, you know, I wake <laughs> up and I think, did, did I die and go to a Jack Trick, Chick track? That's, uh, um, how do you encourage, though, the people who are still of faith to stick around, even when it is, it's just not a convenient thing? Christianity has never been convenient, I understand that. Yeah, but yeah. now it's even more so if you really want to do it. Yeah, you, you know, I remind them of... You know, Jesus is, you know, Gospel of John, he's talking to his students, he's going to be leaving them, and he tells them, hey, I'm encouraging you right now because in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome it. And that has always been the story, and I think we've gotten used to a Christianity of comfort and that it doesn't cost us anything. And so I tell people, uh, especially, you know, white, white Christians right now, there, you have, there has to be a collateral damage to your spirituality, and it's worth it. You know, I've been reading the Diary, Diary of Anne Frank again, and realizing she's talking about, I still have these ideals, it seems crazy, but one day I'll hopefully get to you know, use them again, and people are basically good. And I tell Christians that it, there is a direct tether from people like that throughout history to where we are now. And we have a responsibility to perpetuate whatever we believe the character of Jesus is. So whether you're discouraged or not, it's important because people decades ago thought we were worth it enough to keep going. So that's just our responsibility. 
and some of it I know in the Deep South particularly is, is the, the unfortunate result of years of just trying to tell people they need to get saved. Yeah. You know, that was the whole, it was nothing about anything that's getting somebody dunked in the water and tell them they were, you know, that everything's fixed now. Yeah, you know, I, t I talk a lot to Christians about the idea, you know, we have that phrase, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And we can easily, that can be reassuring, but it can also be an excuse not to, to act or to abstain from the fight. And the, I tell people that they're the arc benders, that, you know, we ha are here at this place in time, and whatever we do is going to affect it. And we know that there are people of faith right now who will gladly step in and bend the arc away from justice. So there, there has to be a response. And there are well-meaning people who are telling people that we, we are born already a disappointment to God. I mean, you come well, into yeah, this world and God right. already is mad at you. And he's disappointed in you already just because you were born. Yeah, you know, I tell people all the time, that's right. I, I talk about the, you know, I call it, you know, Trump Christianity or MAGA Christianity or, or that conservative evangelical thing is, it's actually a tiny God. It's actually a God that is small and resembles them. If your God is perpetually terrified, or if, the, if your God can't handle all these threats to you, they're coming over the border, they're coming to take your jobs, that you're always going to be in this posture of fighting. And, and plus you add to that a God who's out to squash you, a God who you were, you know, talking to a woman in a dog park, and, you know, and she said, yeah, I'm just glad because I, you know, I deserve hell, and, and God loves me. And I said, you deserve hell. I said, for just being born. And she said, yeah. And so if that's the story you're, you're going with, I, I mean, it's a, it's a really bad way to experience God. Oh, it is. And when you grow up in it, you, you, you live in that constant fear. That's you right. Know, it, it's, it's uh, you know, that's the, the you know, I very loving parents. And actually, many of the small little churches were very, they, they really took care of each other when somebody was sick or sure. died. Or, but there was that undercurrent of, we all here need to try harder and do something good because we might not make it and you know we're yeah it's uh, we're just so lucky that jesus died for what can we do for jesus well first of all if you could do something to repay that <laughs> then you really got a plan that i haven't figured out yet <laughs> yeah if you figured out a way to repay jesus then okay let's 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 get that down before yeah, you, you got die. deep pockets uh, yeah well you, and i I tell a story in the book about a Southern Baptist sign guy and, and being with a teenager, a lesbian teenager, and seeing Southern Baptist sign guy and seeing, saying, how do I love him? And part of what I tried to explain was to see that he was not born Southern Baptist sign guy. He's got a family history. He's got a conception of God. And that right now, he's trying to do exactly what you and I are do, trying to do. He's trying to hear the voice of God and respond faithfully. And that's because no one realizes that no one thinks they're getting it wrong. And everyone thinks they're doing something that's noble and decent, uh, even if it appears completely hateful. And that's been the challenge. And when you, but when you add God onto that kind of hateful approach, it's kind of creepy. That was my, sort of leads into my next question. I, I have lost and, and really had relationships changed with longtime friends that I would never have believed in two years because of Trump. Right. That our relationship would be different. Um, how do you? How do you? I mentioned, you mentioned in one interview. I heard you say one of your aunts you can't be around or something. I. I think there, there has been a disconnection in people. When I travel a country, that's the thing I hear the most. I hear isolation, disconnection, severed relationships. And I think the collateral damage of that, there's, we're not going to be able to, to understand that for decades. I think there are people in, in my life that I no longer have relationships with. There are some that I'm working them out. And what I talked about with my aunt probably was the idea of some days I have the energy to engage and listen, and other days what she's posting or saying is so 
horrible or it's it's bringing up such a toxicity in me that I'm not healthy engaging that so there's sort of an ebb and flow to many relationships but there you know a woman came up to me the other day and said my 37 year marriage ended recently because of what I've seen in my husband over the past three years and the ripples of that and you know what it does to children and family gatherings and workplaces it's it's unbelievable and that's the thing I always marvel at people are willing to let this human being who doesn't resemble Jesus be the hill that they're going to die on. And I don't know how that happens in some ways. It seems to have revealed the darkest fears and anger and everything more than created it. I mean, like you're saying, her husband probably already always had those things and he exactly. just finally unleashed it and she had no idea that he was, you know, I mean, I don't know these people. I'm just saying, I swear no, I've no, seen in people right. that I would have never guessed and I, look, I know we're all angry. Everybody's got, men especially, we, we carry that yes. anger somewhere and, and it comes out. But I, I would have never guessed some of the people I know had that explosive anger streak in them mm. just over something they saw on Fox News. And if you said, well, you know, that that's not really true because I saw that. Well, it is true. You know, you're just like, whoa. And you realize you can't engage because they're, that's right. they've already decided and they're mad about it and they're not going to. Yeah, well, it's one thing to see someone in your life acting out and it's another to see the president of the United States. It gives you license in a way that nothing else does. And you know, I remember my son talking about in middle school after the election what kids were saying, and that's a direct tether to what their parents were now saying because of now they've, what the president is saying. Once you break that sort of, you know, break open that that box, then people say, "Oh, I, I can just—that's me. I'm just going to tell it like it is." Right. Uh, that, yeah, people think that gives them, you know, you know, that goes back to a really a phrase that certainly predates all this. I'm just being honest. Well, that's, you know, it's, it reminds me there's a Simpsons episode where Homer's buying a gun and he's buying all the attachments. He buys a silencer and they go, Loudner, yeah. And he goes, uh, do you need the, uh, the helicopter takedown attack? He said, I don't need that yet. And he goes, okay, well, you can get your gun, but there's a three-day waiting period. And he says, but I'm mad now. That's right. And that's the way people are, but I'm mad now. I don't want to look this up and see if it's true. And mm. I mean, hey, look, one of the most godly things out there right now is Snopes. Yeah. They're one for the good people at Snopes doing their homework and some of these other fact checkers, that's media right. bias, and some of these people looking up the actual documents and the source documents. Uh, you'll talk to somebody and say, well, have you read that? Well, no, but I heard them say, well, yeah. and, they, and they get in their car and they turn on whatever. I don't, I, I have so blocked out all conservative radio kind of stuff. I don't even know what all they're saying, but I can, I hear them quoted. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I, I tell the story of being in a relative's house recently and walking in early and seeing Fox News on and saying, oh, well, that explains a lot. Because when you're only getting that, you know, my wife and I will talk about something happening, whether it's with, you know, Kavanaugh or whether it was, you know, immigration, and they don't even know that these things are happening. You, there was a, a, a image the other day they're talking about the you know the Ukraine whole fiasco, and then all the three networks are covering it, and Fox News is covering like pumpkin pie recipes, right? So if that's your source, you don't think it's horrible because you're not even aware. And some of that is on purpose. The people watch that because they don't want to know. I have a feeling that a lot of white Christians who are part of the churches I had led, they just simply have checked out because getting that information will make them culpable. And it's also shifted into something that I don't remember being as prevalent in any other ages. And I've been fairly active politically a long time is what about ism? I'm yes. not seeing it as this refined, no matter what you say. Well, even if you present the fact and hand them the, the document, the Declaration of Independence, yeah. the original copy, you give it to them. And they go, yeah, but what about 
Hillary. What yeah, about Hillary's Obama? Emails. Yeah, what that's about, right. You're like, well, that's not what we're talking about here. You know, we're, but what, the point I was getting to is where, when people ask you these, because I've, I've noticed, I watched some of your interviews online and I've read most of two of your books. Mm. And, um, but people ask you a lot about how do I handle this? How, how do I handle that? Where personally do you, you, you touched on it there, draw the boundary lines between trying to keep peace, confrontation, and just walking away and letting it go? Right, and, there, and you know, there's, there's no answer for everyone because everyone is different, but also their relationships are in different stages. And so part of it is the balance between engaging with people that you love who are have a, a theology or a politics that's dangerous and then taking some of that energy and putting it into other relationships or doing work in the world. So as a, as a pastor and sort of writer and activist, I'm trying to put some of my energy into confronting a group of people about their policies or their beliefs or their theology. And then I'm trying to make sure I put some of that energy into people who are vulnerable right now. So it's doing the same work, but a very different energy. And sometimes we have to take the energy away from people who are not gonna be convinced right now. And because uh, Francis Chan, I don't, I'm not fond of all his politics or his theology in recent years, but he talked about the, the parable of the four soils. And he said, some people are trying to water rocks, that there are people right now, there are, there are Trump supporters right now. That's what you do. If you, as long as you make Fox News your source of information, you're gonna be watering rocks trying to talk to that person. And it, it uh, when it's people close to you, it becomes an even greater challenge to That's decide right. what can I do with this relationship. And it, it, it's, it's one of those things as I've gotten older, it, I have to remind myself, somebody's going to have to be the mature person in the room. You know, and I that's look around, right. I think it may have to be me today, you know. <laughs> well, that's right. And some and sometimes that may be, that may cost you that relationship, at least temporarily, or you, your relationship evolves into, we're just going to talk about superficial stuff, the kids. And someone said to me, yeah, I can't even do that because I can't even talk about the weather because then someone brings up, oh, climate change. So there are just a lot of potholes. I tell people, you know, it's like a minefield walking into a family gathering right now for a lot of people. And that's a real thing. Like, I try not to be cavalier about their relationships. I don't, you know, I can say one thing from in a blog post or in a talk, but I know they've got to walk into those homes and they've got to work it out. That's a really, that's a deep, profound struggle. How about your extended family? How, how do y'all respond when y'all get together? I mean, it's been, a, it's been a mix. You know, I've got folks in my family who love what I do and believe in what I do, and some who've become louder in their beliefs, and then I've had the opposite. And so, and part of it is with family, with friendships, with churches, I realize that I have a new tribe of affinity now, and I'm gonna be sharing life with some different people that I didn't expect to, which is the goal. You know, I tell people, if you, if you share the full contents of your heart, you're gonna alienate some people, but you're gonna bring people into your life that you didn't know before. Churches work the same way. Churches are always thinking, how can we not disturb the people we have? And then ministers, rather, I tell ministers, if you make that brave, bold declaration, you're gonna change your community because the people who are gonna come alongside you, you haven't even met yet. And we need to be doing that, I think. Shifting gears a little bit, we, we mentioned this um, right before we turned the mics on. Um, let's talk a little bit about mental illness because sure. uh, it gets thrown out there when they talk about gun control. It gets thrown out there when they talk about funding. And yeah. obviously, you know, when Kennedy tried the local uh, funding amendment, all that money got spent somewhere else. I mm -hmm. mean, we had 500,000 beds in 1958, and we've got 50,000 nationwide now. Right. Uh, it, it is in crisis, and I, I don't know a single family that hasn't been touched by it. People talk about the kind of things that their families are touched by. You talk, you hear everybody you talk to has somebody's had cancer or somebody's struggling with mental health. 
How do, as a person of faith, do you address those issues when people ask you about, hey, what do we do about people of faith that have mental health problems? How do we minister? Well, I've been, I've been, I've struggled with depression and anxiety for decades, and what I found was there, there was very little understanding of of depression in the church, and churches were ill-equipped to handle it. And and the message that I got as a pastor was, well. That, that's really not something that you share. That's going to be a liability for you. And what I found is as I walked more fully into that, and once I didn't have the expectation of being a pastor in a local church, I could speak more explicitly about it. And then you realize how, how much it permeates the church. And because the church is often, pastors are often put in a place that they don't belong for as, as far as counseling. They're not, they're not you know, educated to be a, a therapist, and yet they're, they're given that spot. And I always, I mean, you know, I'm always trying to encourage pastors to know when they're, they need to pass something off to someone else. But for me, it's this epidemic of isolated people, frustrated people. And I've written about it recently that there is a mental health crisis to this presidency. Not only people who are naturally, you know, prone to depression feel more, you know, horribly about things, but otherwise healthy people are looking at the gaslighting, they're experiencing that, and it's causing you know, issues for them. Um, so it's a huge problem. And the Christianity part, it, oh, you pray a little harder, you know, be a little bit better a Christian and- the, Where's your is, faith? Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, never mind that there's, you know, the stories of, in the gospels about people being, you know, a guy being in a cave and cutting himself. Um, uh, that's the, that perfect Christianity that we seek, and uh, I've embraced you know the illness. What the church does really horribly is that they say you can be a pastor and confess things that you struggled with in the past tense. So you can get up on a Sunday morning and go, "Oh, I used to lust," or ten years ago, yeah. but you can't get up and say, "I'm in the thick of this now." And that's what I do. I write and say, "I, I, I've had the worst dark stretch right now, and here I am." Again, you can't sell the truth. Yeah, you can sell. Hey, this this is an elixir that'll make you better. And that's the other thing. You're you're pretty far down the progressive path, but I know you're old enough to have seen. You know when you talk about the shame and also just outright prohibition of, of telling people they should take mental health drugs. That's right. In the church. Oh, you don't need to be stoned all the time. You don't need mm -hmm. to be doing these things. These you know have faith and you know if you need medicine, but they don't tell their diabetics the same thing. <laughs> That's right, if you have cancer, they don't say, yeah, you know, don't, pray that tumor right. away. They'll say, pray for healing, but they'll also right. say, get the chemo. And I think we have treated mental illness completely disconnected from any other illness. And, and because of that, you know, you see people, you see campaigns for all sorts of or maladies that are wonderful, but they don't, they engender compassion where mental illness engenders something else. And it takes us, you know, to the next uh, step there that's overlooked is, um, equitable treatment of workers. I mean, the churches, mm. particularly in the South, has been anti-union and anti-taking yeah. care, and, and, and yet they don't read James where it talks about the blood of the workers crying right. from the ground. I mean, that's pretty, God's pretty pretty much on the side of the poor and the yes. orphan and the widow throughout scripture. That's a pretty strong theme. Exactly. How that's missed, but I mean, you, you have churches that have, and still do, uh, are, are, are more um, capitalist than they are 
and, and early Christianity, I mean, I'm not, I'm not try, trying to create a, a, a threat of socialism here, but the first church, I don't know what else you, else you call it, it was a socialist. Oh, for sure. Everybody was throwing their, nobody wants yeah. to do that. Everybody says they want a first church, but I've never found one that, that everybody brings their check and throws it on the table. Until they do that, I don't say that anymore. There is nothing that, that especially white evangelicals, hate more than the actual words and teachings of Jesus or the model of the early church, because the model of the early church was we're an interdependent community. There's oneness here. As you get invited in, in, I talk about in the bigger table the story of feeding of a multitude, and there's no spiritual gifts assessment test there, and there's no altar call, there's no proving that you're worthy to be fed. And yet the church, that's all it does. It's all, it, I was at a, a PFLAG event in Charlotte a couple of days ago talking about the beyond the welcome table because every church is welcoming. You go on their website, every church is diverse until you step in a little bit and you realize it's all conditional. It's all an edited, sanitized diversity. So we, yeah, we've got huge problems. And once we get you here, we give you the, we want you to join us, get baptized, get involved, oh, tithe. And, and what I run into, and this is what has broken my heart over the last couple of decades, is people who do that, and when they do it and it doesn't work, they think it's them. Mm. They say, I, I, I'm not good enough. You know, I, I did all the things they told me to do, and it works for everybody else. That's right. Which is obviously the great myth and nonsense, yeah. but they, they really, people really believe that. And um, the, the idea of, I've worked with addicts that would say, okay, I did all these things, but now I'm going to heaven, right? Yeah, well, why don't I commit suicide? Because I got a court date coming, and you know, I got my life's terrible. So if I'm going on to heaven, why am I doing all right. this? You know, they've been given this this misappropriation idea of what it's not gospel; it's some sort of religious oddity that uh, has been substituted for good news. Well, and the church, you know, they, most of them, the large ones especially, but most all of them, they they function as a business, they function as a corporation, they they have numbers that they have to, they're trying to hit. And so pe people become a commodity, and only you're not leveraging marketing in a traditional sense. You're leveraging damnation or salvation. Well, yeah. I and I blame uh, not just him, but John Maxwell and the Maxwellians that basically took all of Peter Drucker's books and put Bible verses with them. Right. And then they came in and tried to use those to make corporations out of churches. I'm not saying churches shouldn't have sound business practices, but most of that stuff has nothing to do with sound business practices. Right. It's about uh, making money, which goes back to what I mentioned earlier is we should have been the church has had enough clout to tell walmart you got to pay your people 15 dollars an hour mm. you know if you don't we're not going to shop there that's you right know? and if all the churches quit shopping there they're done exactly you know? and but we've not used that clout we've not said it from the pulpit called out you know and at the same time you call out your costcos and your people that do pay well and that's take care right. of their employees and jesus was talking about social justice it was in all areas and when and, then, and like I said, this very you can, there's other places, but that passage in James is just as clear mm -hmm. as it could possibly be about not paying. And, and it, back, it takes us back to Trump, right. not paying his workers. How many? I started blaming contractors at some point, though. If there's five or six hundred contractors, that's right. Yeah. If you're one of those last two hundred, you might should have asked <laughs> asked somebody a question. I'll shift gears a little bit here. These are some questions I talk to everybody about, and then we get back to one is how do you approach the Bible? Um. Right, right now in my life, I see it as a document of a certain people at a certain place in time in history trying to understand the world and trying to understand God. And so I, I approach it as a literary document and as I would anything. And I find I sift it for truth. I sift it for meaning. Um, and, and that's really where I leave it now. I, you know, I definitely don't think it was dropped from the heavens. I don't think it was transcribed by God. I think it 
you know, if, if, it's, if there's truth that the same spirit that lived in Jesus lives in you and me, then we have capabilities of, of inspiring people and encouraging people and reflecting the character of God as much as they did. So I just try to have it be a, a document that I receive and it's a library of a place and time. And I've heard people talk about it's more true than literal. Mm. You know, you can take something that's literal, it's more true than literal. Yeah, yeah. right. Well, you know, there are so many times after I kind of came out of, as I started that deconstruction process where I could read passages where I used to know, I'm going to read this passage because this passage says this and this is what I'm going to preach from it. And then being able to approach it and have it be surprise me and that often happens now. I can just read them, read the scriptures, and receive them, and then you know share them. Do you believe in a literal hell? Some days, uh, <laughs> you know, I I don't. I, I actually, I, I don't believe that the character of a God who is love would create a place of eternal damnation. I, I that for me was one of the fundamental shifting points for me because I would look at Jesus telling, you know, teaching, hey, you have to forgive relentlessly. Every time someone asks for forgiveness, you have to forgive. And yet the idea of hell means there's a point where I don't get to be forgiven. And so that's incompatible. So I lean on sort of the character of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the idea of hell doesn't resonate for me anymore. And for me, the idea is I will redeem everything to myself. Mm. And the idea, just from a pragmatic standpoint, and you work with youth, you got a 15 year old kid, Went out to a party, made some mistakes, got drunk, killed himself in a car wreck. He's age of accountability. Right. So for eternity, he's going to be tortured in hell because he was 15 and he was did something stupid. You know that, that that's where it, in my mind that's where all that doubt started on why, why yeah. are we why are we focusing on this? You know. Well, for me, it was the elemental question of what is the character of God, and we would always use God. Well, God is the is Father, and so I said, well, even the the worst parent wouldn't say, hey, you've done something to me, and so I'm going to penalize you for forever. The idea of that grudge and giving God that sort of personality trait is, is something I no longer am able to do. Um, who is Jesus? Uh, Jesus is um, the epitome of, of compassion. He is what a life looks like to me. Jesus has always been the lens through which I see the world. So when I think of God, God uh, walking here always is going to be Jesus for some degree. There's a muscle memory to that. Um, I can try to get away from that and see it objectively, but I know that I'm not able to because of the stories I was raised in. So when I, when I follow the teachings of Jesus, I feel like that's the best way to be human that I found. Uh, so that Jesus is the kind of a path I can walk. And do you think we're all just missing the idea that we're a part of something bigger and, and we may not have a name to put on it, that, that we're all born into a spiritual family and a spiritual oh, dynamic? Without that, a doubt. For, for me, the, the, the less um, tightly I held my theology and my doctrine, the more expansive God became. And so, you know, it sounds, maybe it's universalist to say we're, it all leads somewhere, but I look at it as, can we see, can we see, I don't know how many people there are on the planet, um, but can we see God as a seven billion faceted thing? And we each kind of show the character of God in some way. Because the moment we try to describe God, we've kind of failed already, we try to compare God to something, which is, I think that's for Christi Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, the struggle was, They've given God human characteristics. God is jealous. 
well, how is God jealous and why? Um, so. And, and it, from other traditions, and it certainly it, it permeates throughout Scripture and, it, and really boldly in the Old Testament, if you read what it says, I mean, read what it means rather than what it says sometimes, is the idea that the eternal now, the idea of you're here now, not you're, people are trying to, and, and I understand there was a time, if I had been, you know, a slave picking cotton in the field, I'd have been thinking of the hereafter all the time. Yeah. Because my life was hell. I was living in hell. That right. was hell then. But today people think, you know, I've already done what I need to go to heaven, you know, <laughs> and I feel a little guilty because I don't do things right all the time. Yeah. But my, my job's done. And not the idea of the eternal now and being in front of the people we're in front of and doing the things we can do without having to make a list or feeling guilty or right i still see people caught i mentioned it earlier get caught in that trap of and i've known people who were just serving like it, it, they should get awards if somebody put a television <laughs> on, but they don't think they're doing enough right because, because ultimately you know when you turn the spiritual journey into a pass fail ultimately you're trying to tip that scale whatever that is right. or you reach that say that prayer and for me that i i have no time for that. I mean, it's still there. Growing up Catholic, I mean, that guilt, I'd say I was raised on gluten and guilt. Well, that's still going to be there, but it's trying to figure out a, a more uh, expansive understanding of God. And it all comes down to oneness for me, the interdependence of humanity and the fact that whatever I believe and what I do have to be connected. I have to, most white evangelicals, they want to have the right belief, but they're really not concerned about, you know, I had a pastor in a Baptist, Southern Baptist church, and he, he didn't care if the students in my ministry were going through addiction or identity issues or divorce in their families. He wanted to know if they were baptized. And when you do that, you commodify people and you really not, you're not caring for them. You know, Jesus was a prophetic voice activist, but he was a pastoral caregiver. He, you know, he's shepherd. And so he, you know, I think we don't, we don't have that full Jesus anymore. And it's magic thinking. Mm. You got magic thinking that if you know you get these certain things done, that it really—I mean, it really is a, a, a three thousand year old way to think. You know, yeah. of things. You know, if I did the certain magic, you know, it will. And and you mentioned the eight, seven point eight, whatever billion God facets there are. For me, whether wherever truth comes from, it's truth. Mm. And I, I've had people push back. I'll, I'll, I quoted Alan Watts one time, and somebody wrote me an email saying, well, he committed suicide. I said, so what? Right. Read what he had to say. You know, yeah. Just because he had a tortured life didn't mean there wasn't truth in what he says. And there, there is truth in places that people are afraid to look. Uh, I've exactly. been criticized for mentioning Ram Dass on here before. Because, but look, I'm not a devotee of Ram Dass, but I've read Be Here Now and some of his other books. They're incredible. That's right. He's got some incredible spiritual insights that would would take your spiritual understanding of Jesus to the next level. Exactly. And for, you know, you look at music and art, we don't, we, we can see beauty and truth in everything in those cases. So why can't we do that when people speak about the nature of a character of God or their beliefs? And most of the people that have a tiny God or have this really small religion just have not experienced the world. They, you know, they're taught to fear those other things. You know, that's part of that certainty. Because if I go to India and have an experience that feels genuine, well, does that say something about, is that discredit Jesus? So there's a guilt there. It, there's a great story. I was covering one of these uh, rec the music burning evangelist years ago. I mean, mm. this is 25 years ago. And he had all these youth come down bringing their cassettes and stuff. And I noticed one kid had a friend with him, really long hair, had on a, like a Megadeth t-shirt and stuff. And he kept looking around, looking around. And the guy had them all bow their head and pray. And 
So uh, they all walked back to their seats, and I went up and was waiting to talk to the evangelist guy. Mm. And I looked down, and in the offering plate, that kid had scratched Ozzy Rules. Uh. <laughs> and I thought, one honest emotion <laughs> came right. out of tonight's service, <laughs> you know? But uh, mm. it, it, it just the idea that if we can just get the right list of rules together and just figure out what we can't do and can do, and that's what people want. You mentioned that earlier. That's right. Tell me what to do. Yeah. You know, what can I do that's right and what shouldn't I do that's wrong? Mm. And if that would work, then that'd be great, but it's never worked. <laughs> no, and who can I condemn? You right. know, part of this who Southern, am I supposed to like? Who so, am I supposed yeah, to Southern like? Baptist sign guy thinks, you know, uh, be showing that, that opposing a gay person is actually pleasing God. So somehow, you know, cruelty and inhumanity becomes something that is sanctioned. And so how do you begin to process that, sift that for, okay, these things are acceptable, these aren't. That's where you see the, the fraudulence of, of that kind of Christian faith because you'll say, well, your, your five or ten things that you've chosen to represent God, you're ignoring 5,000 other things that the scriptures say. So an inconsistency is what we need to be able to name. And the religious, the only place where you find God, it, we're talking about anger at all, is, is that religious people. I mean, if you want to talk about Jesus, if you want to pick people to be mad at. That's right. I, was the, I love Matthew chapter 23. It's basically Jesus berating the Pharisees. and Twice as much a son of hell. As, right. When people <laughs> tell me I'm too negative, I just point them to that and say, you know, what Jesus does there, I love it because it's, it could be seen as cruel, but it's redemptive because Jesus is not speaking to damage them, but he's speaking out his compassion for the people that right. those Pharisees are hurting. And I think that's a lesson for us. For me, that's what I call it compassionate activism. I have to get up into the world and say, as I engage this thing, as I oppose something, what is my intent? What is fueling that? Is it is it revenge? Is it I want to stick it to them? Or is it, do I really care about people who are being hurt? And that's always a challenge for me, trying to figure out which one I'm doing. Because sometimes right. I do just want to stick it. Depends on the hour, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, it depends uh, on who it is and what I'm going to move. But who have been some of your biggest influences? Books, speakers, anybody? Yeah, wow. Mike Iaconelli really was pivotal for me because I was new. I didn't ever want Great laugh. You get there, yes. We miss him so badly now. Just think if he were around today I, and held onto the door. Well, and the, yeah, the beauty of, of my experience with, with Mike was I didn't grow up wanting to be a pastor. I didn't have a preconceived idea of what a pastor was supposed to be. And he showed me that that could be look entirely different than what I was seeing in the South. And so he was huge. And, and Tony Campolo was, was pivotal because I can remember being at this giant arena for a youth event, youth pastor event. And he was still evolving on his issues of sexuality. And he gave a message called the person and the principle and how we, we can have our principles, but we never, Jesus always saw the person. And he was very lightly treading into the area, right? But then what happened was in this giant arena, a couple of youth pastors walked out and then 50, and hundreds of these youth pastors were walking out. And I remember thinking, something's wrong here when we're so afraid of that idea. So, you know, Tony gave me that courage. And I talked recently and said, you know, after I was fired, I wanted to seek him out and say, you're gonna have to fund this because this is, you, you paved the way to my ministry termination. Um, and I love Brendan Manning. Brendan Manning was, was helpful for me in just that sort of nurturing presence. And, you know, God as Father may not be something I resonate with as much, but that sort of familial understanding. All his grace, too. That, that, it's just incredible. Tony also did something that's pretty rare. He worked out his understanding very publicly. Yeah. And before he had, he had shifted, I remember he spoke at some event, uh, a gay and lesbian event, and he wept the entire time because he hadn't 
figuring out where he landed yet. And, and, right. and if you disagree with somebody, that's the way you do it. You do it with tears in your eyes. And, yes, that's and, right. And you, and, you, and you do it with. Uh, yeah, and he and he has always been transparent, and I think that's been important. And you see what that has cost him in the evangelical world. So yeah, so that's those have been some folks that have really given me permission to be a different kind of pastor. Do you practice any regular spiritual disciplines? I do. Meditation is very important to me. Our church is a contemplative church, so we're... we're what is your church? I'm sorry. Uh, well, my home church is North Raleigh Community, and so we're a contemplative community that uses Enneagram, um, a lot of interpersonal you know, Where do you land on that? Uh, seven. And, um, <laughs> and, and so that meditation really helps me because the work I do is, is so uh, turbulent that I need to sort of step back. So that engage and withdraw is important for me. So that's probably the most consistent practice. And I know you've read Richard Rohr's sure. stuff. That's yeah. very, very encouraging in that light and then some others as well. But. That's right, yeah. I think what I've seen is that I've, I've loved that many Christians have embraced that that side that was spooky to a lot of Christians and it's sort of de-weirding de it. Mm -hmm. He's Richard's been great for that. Do you, when your kids are your age now, what do you think the church will be? I know this is complete speculation. We neither one of us can, we don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I, I often tell people, they, that's the question I get when I get to a new city, this pastor say, what's the future of the church? And I say, well, the, I think the future of the church is largely being formed by people who have already left it. Because I think in my blog readership, there's millions of people who are either former Christians or Christians who have been part of communities but no longer feel they have a place. And there are people who are atheist, agnostic, and humanist. I think they're gonna figure out a way to create community in a new way. I don't think an hour, a building for an hour on Sunday is gonna be the future. I think it's gonna be, what, how do we call ourselves community in a way that you don't have to be sitting there and be counted and put your name in a, a ledger. So I think the future of the church is going to be much more um, organic. It's going to be much less quantifiable. But I think it's important because my, my story has always has been putting some words out there, and those words find people, and then community comes out of affinity, and not obligation, and not we've always done been here. Um, yeah. And it's not like people haven't been warned for years. I mean, I don't, I don't 30, 35 years ago, Howard Hendricks book, Exit Interviews, mm -hmm. and all the way down to even the latest Barna thing, the Duns are the largest group now. Yeah, yeah. And people have been warned. I mean, the establishment should have seen some of this coming. Well, I think we have too. And I, I think that's been the, the lie of, of Trump winning the election. I think this thing is, this white evangelical thing is in its last gasp and it has power right now. That it Panic has, has power, yeah. Yeah, and so that's where the grab is coming, saying, because if they don't win this, they, they are on the decline sharply. And so right now, this is artificially enlarging them. I didn't want to get done without talking about your latest book. And, and I mentioned in the story I wrote, the title reminds me of Chesterton's Glory to God in the Lowest. Mm -hmm. That poem, yeah. that's what that struck me when I saw the title. Talk about your new book. Well, I was asked to write a, an Advent devotional. And I said, well, I've, I've read a lot of them. And they always seem to focus on the, what would be the pristine nativity scene sitting in your house. I wanted to write something that if you moved to four feet to the right, what would you see? What would the really authentic experience be? So I, you know, the idea of low was an interesting word because as a posture, 
you're low when you grieve, you're low when you when you're reverent, you're low when you serve someone. So how could you know? Could I write something that spoke more to the honest experience, so the joy and the suffering, the belief and the doubt, um, and that's what I've written. So I, I really am I'm grateful that Chalice said, yeah, let's do that, and it's just talking about my experience of especially that season through the lens of either deconstruction or doubt or struggle. Plenty of time for people to get that in time for Advent too. Yeah, absolutely. And shake the Ricky Bobby, dear baby Jesus. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, and there's something you know, when you when you can just embrace the fullness of anything as a Christian, it's really helpful. You don't have to sanitize Christmas. Even the idea of birth, I you know talk about the birth stories. If you've been present for a birth, pretty traumatic, messy experience. Somehow we have this little Jesus in the nativity, and we we remove him of all that power that that mess. Anybody who's actually watched the birth, it's not beautiful. No, it's not something you want on your mantle. No. <laughs> um, the uh, you've 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 stayed busy and you seem to, to your schedule seems really busy. Yeah. So what's next for you? What do you have in your plans here in the next few years? What's your next book? Uh, I, well, the next book I think is going to be called Unboxing God and the idea that you know that traditional evangelical Christianity the, their God is just too small and there's an expansive space when you deconstruct that you you just don't realize how big of an area you can actually live in and still be someone who's a spiritual person so it's going to talk about that the ideas that racism and that homophobia that nationalism that all comes from a shrinking idea of God a real small idea of God when you release yourself from that you're not threatened by difference. You're not intimidated by diversity. Um, so that's what I'll be doing. And then it's deciding what the next year, probably I'll be traveling a lot because the, with an election coming up, I'll speak into that as much as I can. And whatever happens, I'll either be moving or I'll be you know, staying. Um, and so we're looking into maybe starting a local community in Raleigh that would be a reflection of all the stuff that I write about. And. Um, so yeah, I try to hold it loosely because five years ago I couldn't have told you I'd be where I am. So I try to get up every day and do, do, do what I love faithfully and then see where it leads. Are there enough frightened people to be four more years of Trump? Uh, I, I think there are. What I think the question is, are there enough loud people, you know, people, progressive people or people, just humane people willing to be loud enough and not tired enough to stop fighting? So I think the numbers are there. You know, I talked about the, the idea of common good Christians and common good Muslims. If we all actually did the work, we, we have the numbers. It's if we bicker or we abstain or we drop away, then we'll lose. And my hope is that the, 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 the people who were marginally Trump supporters last time are gonna stay home. That's my other You would hope, hope, or you would hope that maybe, con you know, they'd have a, a revelation of what what's happened in their culpability and that they would overcome the guilt you know I know people who are guilty and yet will still vote Republican uh, I, we, we did a, a there's a group called vote common good we traveled around last year we'll travel around next year telling we, white evangelicals you can vote a different way and still vote your faith in fact you may have to vote a different party to vote your faith and I think that's what's important to me is that Christians say I'm not going to be apologetic about my moderate or progressive faith. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to say that's not, I don't do this be, and then also I'm a Christian. I do this because I'm a Christian. And you've been in the Deep South long enough to know though that the two tenets of faith are a, 
anti-abortion and gun control, so that will be the, yeah. the difficult things to get people to realize there's more issues than those two things. Completely. And that abortions are at an all-time low since the reverse as well. All the news right. that doesn't get out there. Well, that would be, you know, that would enter, that would cause me to have to read or to know facts or to get deep into issues. Is there a candidate that you wish would? See, to me, it's Sherrod Brown. I know it's mm. Sherrod Brown. You got a tough guy, union guy, Illinois. Yeah. You pair him with anybody, and he would be, he would just be brutal in on those debates. Right. And he could win because he also has not spent his last three years attacking Trump. He's been trying to get the work of government. That's right. Done. He's an interesting guy. Yeah, I haven't, you know, there's no candidate. There are candidates, there's something I, I admire about each of them, but I know there's a humanity to all of them. So for me, it's a, obviously it's a no-brainer that I would vote for them over Trump. So I'm just hoping that we find someone who, if they do defeat Trump, that they can re recalibrate how we talk to one another. You know, what I see in some, some of the candidates, most of them, is a decency that I hope we can actually recover. I think that's going to be more important than anything because growing up, I saw these, these two political parties and yet when a push came to shove, I thought they were, would work together for the common good. And right now I don't see that. And they also, in years gone by, and I've covered politics, they, the mature ones recognize whatever we get past here will come back to haunt us if it's not, you know, yeah. when our party's out. That's right. And they've, they've lost that idea. There's that, no, yeah, there's no accountability. There's an idea because so many people have been able to speak abject lies or say, I didn't say that with a video of them saying that. Right. And there's that sort of truth is irrelevant at this point to them. Well, last question I, I, I borrowed from another podcast, but I ask everybody anyway, what's the last time that you laughed so hard you lost your breath? It happens frequently in our home, and it's my nine-year-old who somehow taps into something in me. See, I never laugh out loud. My, my, people have told me, you rarely laugh out loud unless it's something you said, and then you laugh out loud. I said, well, because I have a good sense of humor. But my, my daughter frequently is able to especially pinpoint things in me that she sees. So probably three or four days ago, you know, she gets me in hysterics, and my, my wife has said, that's the only time you really laugh out loud. Well, John, you're one of the good guys. I appreciate you taking time. And Thank your you books so are all on Amazon? They are. They're and everywhere. you can go to your website. Tell them about your website and what all they can find there. Yeah, it's johnpavlovitz.com. And there are blog posts. You can find out where I'm speaking and, uh, and see what's happening next. We're trying, you know, whether we launch a community, there's an apparel shop there. But um, yeah, I've been fortunate that I'm out there in the world and people read some of the things I write. And I, I'm not a Christian celebrity. I'm just a pastor who has a wider sort of um, platform, so I'm just grateful for it. I'm grateful that John has a wider platform as well. Uh, his voice is one that needs to be heard. Uh, there are too few Christians who are willing to take the slings and arrows that come with the kind of uh, confrontational approach he has taken. Um, and he does it without uh, anger. I, I talked to him quite a while and I didn't sense any anger. I didn't sense any bitterness. But at the same time, he's taken a firm stand against the uh, Trumpwellian sort of approach to evangelicalism and into this country and to the way marginalized people are being treated. And I am glad that there are people like John out there who uh, help still tether me to the idea that there might be some reason and some hope and some faith. I hope you'll join me again next time. I'm still booking guests for the fall, and we're hoping to get this back on another regular schedule. I appreciate all of the emails. I appreciate uh, all the comments. And um, 
I uh, look forward to hearing from you. If you have any ideas of uh, guests you'd like to hear, you can contact me at gwilson at thinkinggod.com. Thinkinggod.com is obviously the website if you want to check something out. The fire gone out, but the light is never dying. Who says I can't get heavenly? Suffering is unending Every nook and cranny has its tears I'm not playing I'm not pretending I'm not nursing any superfluous fears Ain't talking Just walking Walking ever since the Happy.